0: So on this morning, I believe a lot of what Matthew shared on this morning is going to align with the word that I have for you on this morning. Um, Pastor has been preaching on the armor of God, and right now we're on a pause. He's going to finish that up when he comes back. But the big thing here, though, is, is I saw up there a warrior of God. To a certain extent, that's what I'm going to be talking about on this morning. I remember my brother Luther some years ago, he used to teach a series called Armor Up. He used to teach it to men. And so on this morning, we're going in that vein. I'm not speaking directly about that, but we're going in that vein. And so on this morning, you know, a lot of times when I'm thinking about, Lord, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to say? He'll drop something in my heart. And that's what he did on this past week. He dropped something, a nugget in my heart. And I just kind of have run with it on this morning. So I'm going to try to have you catch up with me so that we can continue running with this word. And so I'm going to start it off by a little introduction here. It says, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ... We are recorded in the book of Acts, the ascension of our Messiah, the happenings of the day of Pentecost with the giving of the spirit of God, the establishing of the church and 3000 souls being added to the body. We see the healing of the man at the gate called beautiful and the subsequent arrest of Peter and John because of the stir that his healing caused. Later, we see the death of Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Holy Spirit. We also see the establishing of the office of deacon in the church to minister to those who are in need. One of those deacons who emerges is Stephen. Stephen serves as a witness to the Jews who oppose the preaching of the gospel. And this led to his stoning as he looks upon our Savior standing while he gives his life in martyrdom and there forgives those who stone him it is at this occasion that we meet Saul of Tarsus. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter seven. Acts chapter seven. I'm gonna read verse 58. It says, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him, talking about Stephen, And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And when it says there that they laid down their clothes, what they're really referring to is they laid down their cloaks or their coats, their outer garments. They laid them all at Saul's feet. Of course, we know that Saul of Tarsus is the one who will become Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. After Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, God's use of Paul as an apostle of Jesus Christ is recorded throughout the rest of the book of Acts. In several of the places where his witness is recorded, there is a phrase that Paul uses several times that will serve as a focus for our discussion here on this morning. So let's begin by going to Acts chapter 9. Acts 9. Let me read verses 1 and 2. It says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found anyone who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Paul, at this point, is still a persecutor of the church. He's known as Saul. Saul of Tarsus. There are two words that I want you to focus on, but I'm not going to tell you those two words just yet. I'm going to see if you find them, because we're going to go now go to Acts chapter 19, because we're going to find those two words there. Acts 19, starting at verse 11. By this time, Paul, or should I say Saul, has been converted. And he is now Paul the Apostle. And now he's going about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And he's causing quite a stir. Starting at verse 11, it says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. How many know they were in trouble when they said that? Because the Jesus that Paul's preaching must become your Jesus. Verse 14. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came, confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. Lastly, let's go to Acts 24. Acts 24, we're going to start at verse 10. It says, then Paul, after the governor had mo- uh, nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Paul is standing before a governing council. He's been, if you will, arrested. And so he's before these rulers, these governors, explaining himself. Verse 11. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, So I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there be there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Hopefully by now you've seen two words that have shown up in all three passages that I've read. And the phrase is the way, the way. That's the phrase that I'm spotlighting. In all three instances, it is used as a noun referring to the proclamation of the gospel and the people's response to it. In the first instance of Acts chapter 9, we see Paul, who's known as Saul of Tarsus at this time, as a persecutor of the way and the people who are a part of it. In the second instance of Acts 19, we see the way as being responsible for all the commotion that is going on in Ephesus. But this time, instead of Paul being the one who opposes it, it's Paul who's the cause of it. In the third instance, Paul is before the governing authorities defending the way which he is preaching. Because they're accusing him of blasphemy and other things. And he's there defending it. And each instance, he mentions the way. The way. Now, I don't believe this phrase evolved out of nowhere. I don't believe this was a catchy phrase that happened to catch on for the followers of Yeshua. I believe it is based on the calling of John the Baptist as recorded in Matthew 3. So if you will go with me to Matthew 3. And I'm just going to warn you we're going to be all over the place on today, but we're going to be going in the same direction. Matthew chapter 3 verses 1 through 3. It says in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." But this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The Greek word there for way in Matthew three is the exact same word in Acts chapter nine, Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 24. It's defined as a, a way, a traveled way, A traveled road, a traveler's way, a journey, traveling. So, of course, it's talking about the way that a person takes in the physical earth. But it's also used metaphorically. It also means it's a course of conduct, a way or a manner of thinking, feeling, and deciding. In other words, the way you live your life. Followers of Jesus were known as people who followed the way. Because we are followers of Jesus, we are people of the way. This morning, I want to discuss what it means to be people of the way. Way implies the road traveled, the path taken, as well as the journey itself. As a result of being in the way, there is a course of conduct involved as well. So what is the way, the path, or the journey like? What does it involve? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) This passage concerning John the Baptist is actually based on Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 3. So let's go there. As you well know, I love connecting things up. Isaiah chapter 40. Verses 1 through 3. This is the passage that John the Baptist was actually quoting from. Verse 1. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So this is a reference to John the Baptist as the forerunner of Christ and the proclamation of the good news to Israel. Remember that John the Baptist and Jesus was first sent to the house of Israel. Jesus said, I've been sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So this is supposed to be good news for Israel. John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way of the Lord. We see later on in Matthew 3 that there was a step that Jesus felt it necessary to take, even being baptized by John. Let's go there. Go back to Matthew 3. I didn't give you these verses, Richard. Because I want, I want you to see something about Jesus. Verse 13 in Matthew chapter 3. Says then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all, all righteousness. Jesus really had no need to repent. See, John preached the baptism of repentance. Jesus really had no need to repent because he was sinless. Yet he expressed to John that it was necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus insisted upon being baptized because there there was a way that the father wanted him to take. And he did not miss any details. There was a path he was to take, and it was straight, based on the will and instruction of the Father. Go with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 30. Jesus is speaking here. He says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus made it a point that he did nothing apart from what his father desired him to do. His father wanted him to be baptized. If you remember, after he was baptized, the heavens opened. The Holy Spirit descended down like a dove. And the father spoke from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's why Jesus felt it necessary to be baptized. Because the father knew at this point I'm going to declare to the whole universe, to the heavens and the earth, this is my son. This Is my son. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. We're still talking about Jesus' desire to do the Father's will and to do nothing outside of what the Father wanted him to do. He only did what the Father wanted him to do, He only said what the Father wanted him to say. Philippians chapter two, verse five, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Let me summarize that for you. Jesus being God, Jesus being equal with the father, chose willingly because that was the father's desire to become like us and submit himself to death on a cross. The Old Testament tells us cursed is anyone that hangs on a tree. The son of God. The perfect God, the living God. Became a curse on a tree for us. Why? To submit himself to the will of the father. Verse 10. That at the name of, I skipped verse 9, I'm sorry. Therefore God the Father, also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Imagine the path that the Son of God took. He left the right hand of God the Father. He was conceived in the womb of a virgin by the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you were to go to Hebrews chapter 10 verses five through seven, it even talks about the fact Jesus is saying what Jesus said, a body have you prepared for me. So the father had a body prepared for the son. And in that body, he would walk the earth And give his life for us. He came through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And out of Jacob, the nation of Israel was formed. But then after the nation of Israel was formed, it was divided up into 12 tribes based on the 12 sons of Jacob. It was narrowed down to the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the son of David. And he became Mary's baby. He perfectly fulfilled the requirements of the law. He perfectly submitted to the will of the father. He had perfectly embraced the cross of Calvary. Why was his way straight and narrow? Because the way of salvation is the plan of the ages. Designed, carried out, and applied by a holy God who is perfect. Jesus accomplished a perfect or complete salvation. The evangelist, teacher, and author, Derek Prince, some of you may have heard of him, quotes a woman who was filled with the Holy Ghost that helped him get healed saying this. Consider the work of Calvary, a perfect work, perfect in every respect, perfect in every aspect. When you read the gospel accounts, you'll see that every element, every detail prophesied concerning his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus went to great lengths to fulfill it. You'll see it commented on as you read through the gospels, he did this so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. This happened that the scriptures would be fulfilled. What am I trying to say in stressing all of this? The way that Jesus took was difficult and it is exclusive in that he had to follow the path mapped out by the father. It wasn't inclusive. In other words, Jesus wasn't free, though he is God. He wasn't free to just go his own way or do his own thing. It was the way that the father had paved out for him. And it is the way he expects us How exclusive is the way? Well, the book of Acts tells us there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In other words, you can't go to Buddha. You can't go to Muhammad. You can't go to Confucius. There is no other name There's only one lamb of God who was slain. And Jesus is that lamb. So what is the way like when it comes to following Jesus? You know, a lot of times when we give the invitation for people to receive Jesus, sometimes we might do them a disservice because we don't tell them all that is involved. Yes, salvation is free, Jesus paid for it. You can do nothing to add to it and you definitely can't take away from it. But once you get saved, the Bible tells us that we've been translated from the powers of darkness into into the kingdom of God's dear son. The road you were walking on here changes to the road or way that you're on in the kingdom. And once you're in the kingdom, how can I put this? It involves a lot. I'll just put it that way. So first of all, because we're going to talk about four points, so four characteristics that, that, that involve following Jesus in the way since we are people of the way. Now, I could do a whole lot more, but we would be here a lot longer than you want to be here. So first of all, talking about the way, here is the thing. The way is actually a person. Turn to John chapter 14. John 14, verses 1 through 6. says, let not your heart be troubled. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. In fact, these are some of the final words he's going to share before he's arrested. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. And how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, we Thomas made the mistake of assuming that the way to where he was was actually a destination, and Jesus had to open his eyes and say, "No, it's not a destination. It's a person." You know, you're something when it's one thing to to say, "I have love," or "I have truth," or "I have." But it's a whole different thing to say, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. At Lazarus' resurrection, when he approached Martha, Martha said, Jesus, if you had been here, Lazarus would not have died. Jesus said, oh, do you believe that he shall live again? Martha's response said, she said, I know in the last day that you're going to raise up all of those who are dead. He said, no, no, Martha, you're missing it. I am the resurrection. If Jesus is in the building, he is the resurrection. If Jesus is in the building, he is healing. If Jesus is in the building, he is deliverance. If Jesus is in the building, he is prosperity. Jesus is everything you need him to be as long as you got him. That's what he was letting Thomas know. No, the way isn't mapped out. I am the way, Thomas. So, what does it mean that Jesus is the way? Well, Jesus' name means Jehovah is salvation. Notice it doesn't say Jehovah has salvation, Jehovah is salvation. Jesus is salvation himself. To know him is salvation. Turn with me to John chapter 17. Listen to the words of Jesus. 17 verses 1 through 3. It says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's in a person. It's in Jesus. Since salvation is in Jesus, since salvation is. Is Jesus. We have no need to look to anyone or anything else. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Paul was concerned about the saints who were at Colossus. Because, of course, they were part of that whole culture. And then that culture, wisdom and knowledge, was something that was strived for, debated about. People even spoke on behalf of others uh, concerning wisdom and were paid for it, even if they didn't believe it themselves. They had all kinds of vain philosophies that circulated in the culture that surrounded the saints that were in Coloss. And so listen to the words of Paul. It says, for I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom wisdom. And knowledge. Now, this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuading words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Paul shared this with them to reinforce the point that they had nowhere else to look. They didn't need to look to anyone else. He says that the fullness of the Godhead, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, dwells in Jesus bodily. Also says that all in verse 3 in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So whatever you need to know, whatever you need to learn concerning how to walk this out, it's in Jesus. Now I'm going to tell you why this is so important. Because we live in an upside down world right now. Please someone explain to me. How can you be the one attacked, have your babies killed, your women raped and ravished and killed, people kidnapped? You declare war on the folks who do this to you, and somehow half the world is demonstrating against you. That doesn't make any sense. That's similar to blaming the victim of rape. What are are you talking about? But look at our college campuses. And believe it or not, if I were a betting man, I bet you that some of them came out of churches that preached the word. But the problem is, is that many times when you send your sons and daughters off to college, they get confronted with a lot of these vain philosophies and ways of thinking. They get all of this propaganda fed to them. And after four years of college, they come out and you don't even recognize your son or daughter. It's because they've taken in all of these vain philosophies and ways of thinking that they are surrounded by as believers. That's why Paul made it a point to stress you have no need to look to anyone else. Everything you need is in Jesus. That is going to become very important as we continue on this journey that we're on. And I believe we're living in the last days. And something, if you, if you want to know why I believe that, go to Matthew chapter 24. Look at what Jesus says and you'll say, man, this sounds like what's happening right now. And one of the things that he mentions over and over again in Matthew 24 is be careful that no one deceive you. He also mentions over and over again, look out for false prophets and false teachers. Now, here is something I want to clue you in on. We tend to think of false prophets and false teachers of folks that are in the church but I dare to say that there are false prophets on college campuses. There are false prophets in our government. There are false prophets in Hollywood. Why do I say that? Because many of us sit in front of a television or on the internet and we take in everything that they say as if it's gospel. But Paul says, No, you have no need to look to them. Not when it comes to how we live. Not when it comes to what is the heart of the father. No. Jesus, Jesus said this. He who has seen me has seen the father. So first of all, the way is a person. Second of all, the way requires a cross for you and for me. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. Verse 24. We're going to read down to verse 27. Says, then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. So what does it mean to take up my cross and follow Jesus? Jesus left everything in heaven to come to earth to take up his cross. Are we ready to lose everything on earth for the sake of the kingdom, even our lives? I don't hear a lot of amens on that one. See, one of the things that I think we need to really recognize here, we have it good here in America. We have it very good. For the most part, the most that might happen to us is somebody look at us crossways if we shout Jesus. Or somebody might decide that they don't want to associate with us because we believe in Jesus. But if you go to other countries, like Iran, North Korea, China, they have underground churches. Why? Because the rulers there won't let them worship as they please above ground. Because, see, here's what they're afraid of. If the rulers in China Let the underground church, because see, they have an official church, but they can only teach what China allows them to teach, which means they ain't teaching this. Excuse my English. But they know if we let the underground church that worship the true and living God according to his word, filled with the Holy Spirit, we let them loose here, they're going to turn China upside down, just like they did in the book of Acts with Paul and Peter and John. That's what they're afraid of. But see, what's happened here in America, that happened here in America, America in several places, but here is the thing. The church here in America has become institutionalized. We've become a part of the culture. Too much of the church has blended in with the culture. But that is not for the people of the way. We have to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Pastor has talked about this and putting on the whole armor of God. Part of it is the sword of the spirit, using the word of God, meaning you've got to speak. Sometimes when you speak, others might be offended, but that's okay. We don't speak to injure or to hurt, but we speak to declare life and to speak truth. As we approach the end of the age, It just might require that we lose everything. I'll have, I'm going to be open here a little bit. A little while ago, probably like a year ago, the Lord was dealing with me about the fact, because the Lord enabled my wife and I to purchase a new home a couple years ago. We love our new home. But the Lord had just been whispering in my ear, are you willing to lose this home if you have to? Are you willing to lose everything that I've blessed you with if I require that? And it's easy to say yes when you're not facing that. But if you're really honest with yourself and search your heart, you have to ask Am I ready to do that? Am I ready to do that? It may even cost us our lives. There are those that believe that the persecution we see in other nations is going to eventually reach here in America. That is a distinct possibility. Are we ready? Third of all, the way is narrow. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, verse 13. Jesus is here speaking in his sermon on the mount, and he's coming towards the end of it. And he makes this statement in verse 13 of Matthew 7. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So, what does it mean that the way is narrow or that it's straight? It means it is characterized by trials, tribulations, and sufferings. It may also be characterized by persecution. For Christ's sake, let me talk a little bit about this a little bit more. When it talks about the way being narrow, it's not so much like if you got a narrow doorway, you're having to squeeze through it. What it's really referring to is that you're walking the path that the Lord has mapped out for you. And you're being pressed in and hemmed in on every side by trials, by sufferings, by tribulations, by persecutions. And how you react to that determines the path that you take. That's why it says that few there be that go that way. Because it becomes easy when trials come your way to lean to something else other than the Lord himself. It becomes easy. What are are some things that we could turn to when life gets hard, when it becomes difficult? That's what this passage is talking about. Life is squeezing in on you. But it's for the purpose of perfecting who is in you. What is in you? But it says here, few take that path. Many go the other way. The wide gate that leads to destruction. That's what Jesus is talking about here. This is connected to taking up your cross and following in Jesus' footsteps. I mentioned this earlier, but consider what it means to be a Jewish person today even in the United States of America. It is going to or it may become that way for the believer because of our love for Yeshua, for Jesus, and for his people. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Starting at verse one. It says, now a great sign appeared in heaven A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Let's stop right there for a second because I can hear some folks calling like, what in the world is male child and red dragon and all this other kind of stuff? This Who's the woman? Well, let's talk about that a little bit. The woman is the nation of Israel. The male child that she gives birth to Who shall rule the nations with a rod of iron. You can probably guess who that is. That's Jesus. That's right. And then it talks about this great fiery red dragon. Let's read on. You'll find out who the great fiery red dragon is. Verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So the time is going to come when the enemy will be cast down to the earth. And when he is cast down to the earth, the heavens are going to be shouting. But they speak from heaven saying, woe to the earth, because the enemy has been cast down to the earth. And he has great wrath because he knows his time is running out. Let's read on. Verse 13. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, Israel, who gave birth to the male child, Jesus, But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman. So the enemy is going after Israel and continues to go after Israel to destroy Israel. That he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And here's the verse I really want to key in on. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's us y'all, that's us. Now whether we will be here during this time, that's up for debate. Some believe we will, some will believe we won't. But even if we won't be here for this specific incident does not mean that the fire won't be turned up under the church before this time comes. Fourth and last. Fourth of all, the way is holy. The way is holy. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. Richard, I I didn't give you the verses before that, but I'm going to start earlier than this because that passage is key to what we're going to see in verse 13. So I'm going to start In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though you now, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory receiving the end of your faith the salvation of your souls now look at what Peter says about those who are looking at the salvation that we receive verse 10 of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you Searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into. Look, think about this. The salvation that has been purchased for us by Jesus. The prophets who prophesied this desired to really understand and grasp what they were prophesying. But they understood they weren't ministering to themselves, but ministering to those of us who would receive the salvation that Jesus purchased. And it is so great that the angels are peering into it, wondering, trying to understand and grasp how great the salvation that has been purchased for us. One of the faults I believe that we as ministers are guilty of is sometimes we, we whittle down the gospel down to Jesus died for you, for your sins, and now you can be forgiven and have eternal life. Of course, that's important, but it's much bigger and greater than that. As an example, I've shared this before, but there are many new people in here, so you you haven't heard this before. How many have seen the movie Trading Places? You can be honest, okay. The rest of you who haven't seen it, don't watch it. I saw that movie back in the day when I wasn't walking with Jesus. Let's put it that way. Well. If, to understand the, the, the where I'm going here, let's talk a little bit about the movie. Eddie Murphy played a, a veteran who was, he had, he was out of the military. He was a, a hustler on the streets. In fact, he duped people into believing that his legs had been cut off and he wandered around on this cart, covered his legs with a, a blanket of some kind and he would beg for money. Well, two gentlemen who were Wall Street executives who were very rich made this bet. It was about nature versus nurture. And how that was connected to how a person ended up. So they made this $1 bet and what they did was is that they raised up Eddie Murphy. And he went from being a beggar on the street to being a Wall Street executive who had this huge townhouse, probably worth 2 or 3 million dollars. Well, he was working on Wall Street, and he started to get comfortable there. He started to, you know, I think I can do this. Well, he still had his old friends from the street, and he invited them to his house for a party. Prostitutes, drug dealers, drug addicts, the whole gambit. Whoever you can think of, they were a part of this party. But when they got there, they're partying, they're doing their thing and all that kind of stuff. And Eddie Murphy starts to notice how they're treating the place he lives and the things that are in the place that he lives. And he starts to get upset. He comes to a point where he kicks them all out. And he kicks them out not because he thinks he's better than them, he kicks them out out because he starts to recognize wait a minute that's not me anymore i've been given something that i need to protect and guard with everything i have i've been given a position on wall street and i've been given this big fancy townhouse i need to protect that but that's not all that changed about he started to think about himself differently He went from being a bum on the street in his mind to being a very rich Wall Street executive and he played the part very well. What's my point? Eddie Murphy was a bum over here, but he was translated from being a bum over here to being a Wall Street executive over here and had been given something much bigger than he could ever imagine. And he recognized it and protected it. Jesus saves us from our sin and of our mess. And he moves us from the powers of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And one day he will entrust to us the kingdoms of heaven. Are you getting this? Are you understanding this? So when you recognize where God has delivered me from, to where he has brought me to, why would I ever go back to the mess that he took me out of? The way is holy. The way is holy. Listen to this. Holy means sacred, pure. Morally blameless, consecrated, set aside for the master's use, set apart. How many have a special coffee mug that no one else can drink out of? Come on, I know there are more hands than that. That's the same principle involved. Jesus, you're his coffee mug. And he has set you apart, and you are specifically for him and him alone. Speaking of holy, listen to this. Of things which, on account of some connection with God, possess a certain distinction and claim to reverence as places sacred to God which are not to be profaned. Here is what I mean by this. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 16. It says, do you not know that you are the temple of God? And that the spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple you are. So in other words, here's what I'm trying to say. Since you know you've been moved from this messy place into this place of life then walk accordingly. How many got the briefing when they were growing up? Some of y'all don't know what the briefing is. Let me tell you what the briefing is. When I was growing up, it was four of us boys, my mom and my dad. We would often go visit other family members and we had cousins that we played with. Before we went over there, my dad would give us the briefing. I don't care what you see your cousins doing. Remember, you belong to me. I knew exactly what that meant. Here is what God is saying. I don't care what you see the world doing. Remember, you belong to me. Why is this so important? Go to Hebrews chapter 12. It's just a little little bit longer. I know we've been kind of long, but just a little bit longer. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 7. The writer of Hebrews here most believe it's the Apostle Paul. He's writing to Hebrew Christians who are thinking about turning away from the faith because they're people of the way, but the way is narrow and therefore they're enduring great persecution. So they're thinking about returning to Judaism. Verse seven, Hebrews 12. If you endure chastening, because he's talking about God deals with us as his children. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which you all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that. What is lame may, be dis- may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. That's why holiness is necessary. And that's the reason why the Father chastens us in order to prepare us to walk holy, because it's in holiness we will be able to stand before him. The way is holy. Here's another reason why this is so important. Remember I said you've been entrusted with something so big you have no, we don't have any understanding of what God has given us. And what God is doing here in us traveling as people of the way is preparing us for what he has for us. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Some background here. Church at Corinth. They're rich in gifts of the spirit. I mean, God moves in their midst. I mean, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, miracles, signs, wonders. But man, they are an immature people. An immature people. So Paul is having to correct their behavior. Verse 1 in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. says, dare any of you Having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Think about that. He's talking to us. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Not done yet. And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Look at what he says in verse three. Do you not know that you shall judge angels? How many knew that before we read that? Not many people know that the day is coming. And when it uses that word judge. It's not that you will just sit in judgment judging matters. That'll be a part of it. But what's implied is that you will rule over the world and that you will rule over angels. Something's in my eye. Think about that. That's what God has prepared for those who love him. That's why he desires to walk That desires for us to walk in the way that he desires us to walk. We are people of the way. It's narrow. It's hard. It's difficult. But it's rewarding. There are other adjectives I could use to describe the way, but we would be here, again, like I said, a lot longer than you want to be. Ultimately, here is what God is asking Is your heart set on the things of this world or the kingdom of God in the age to come? Are the decisions you make dictated by my spirit and my word or do you follow your flesh? If you were arrested for being a follower of Christ, would there be enough evidence to convict you? We see a world that is growing darker and darker at a rapid pace. As people of the way, now is our time to shine. Now is our time to armor up. Now is our time to step to the plate. Amen? Amen. Stand to your feet.